Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. There will be no consequences for the person who abused me. But if me speaking out gives another girl or another woman or another teenager the courage to stand up and say, this is what's happening to me and this is who's doing it and they have the chance for justice, then that's what I want to happen. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Angie, thanks so much for, for joining me on the show. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really interested to talk with you and and thankful that you're willing to come on the show. And I, I'm just kind of curious, when we have these kind of conversations, I like to get context of how people got introduced to the independent Baptist world, because there's a variety of there's people that get into it when they're, you know, 20 or 30, but then you also have people that were born and raised within that movement. Can you share a little bit of context about how you got introduced to the IFB? Yeah, I was basically born into it. My parents have both, in both of their backgrounds, they have type of a Quaker friends type influence, Hmm. very works oriented. My dad, my parents were, my dad was in the military, actually overseas when I was born. And there was a missionary over there that introduced them to the IFB type, I think, style of church. And it was there that my dad felt called to preach. And so he got out of the military and went to Bible college at Tennessee Temple University. And so I think that's really where the IFB started. And at that point, I was like two Hmm. when we moved to Tennessee. Yeah, I was really born in it, been in it my whole life. So what's your earliest memory of being the IFB? Because you're you don't have any memory of transitioning into that kind of world, but what's your like kind of earliest memory? Were, were they positive within the movement? Was it, I, I feel like when you're on the inside, like there's no comparison. So no way to know whether it's good um, or bad. My first memories are of actually being on the bus route with my dad. My dad drove hmm. the bus for a while at Tennessee Temple. And I remember riding the bus home after church with him. 
in Tennessee, I don't have a whole lot of memories. I was still very young. We moved out of Tennessee when I, by the time I was five, so I don't have a whole lot of memories there, but I'd say they were fairly good. At the age of five, we moved from Tennessee back up to Michigan, where my grandparents, uh, where my mom and dad both grew up. And we began attending my the church that my mom would go to with her grandmother and, uh, and began deputation. Some people today don't know what that is. So what's deputation? Where the missionary travels around and tries to get people, churches to support them. And they're in you know a different church, sometimes three times a week. And we, that started when I was five and went till I was eight. And that, that period of time was actually very rough for me. There was a lot of pressure because you get the be on your best behavior speech every time before you get out of the car. And <laughs> at every church you go to, there's a whole new church, tons of new people, always meet new people, nothing's ever the same. And we weren't at our home church enough for it to actually be home. We were strangers there too. So even when we were home, it was still that pressure to be, you're always on display and you're always performing. And there was a lot of pressure to always be on your best behavior. And as missionaries go to churches, they go and they perform. That's what they do. They sing their songs and they show their slide presentations and things like that. And in our slide presentation, this is a memory that I have from almost every church. My siblings picture, my parents, there's just two of us, their son and me. And in the slide presentation, they do that period where they like introduce the family. And his picture in that presentation was him sitting at a, his school desk, ACE uniform, the you know, flag tie and the whole bit. My picture in the thing was my first birthday and I have chocolate cake all over me. And as a little kid, adults may have thought that was cute or funny, but as a little kid, it was humiliating. It was embarrassing. I wanted to like crawl under the pew every time that came up. Partly because I viewed it as embarrassing, but partly because every single church, I got comments after the service about, I hope you've learned to eat better than that. I hope you know how to stay clean now. Or it was really bad if we were having like a potluck meal. They'd be like, don't let her have chocolate cake. She'll make a mess. I don't know if my parents ever heard the comments, but I heard them all the time. And in that world, you don't talk back to adults. <laughs> so it wasn't like I could say, hey, that's mean or you're hurting my feelings or whatever. So that was like every church. And so that's a major memory for from five to eight that that is a, a rather formative influence <laughs> right. as well as it was that age period where we discovered that I have some, had some learning disabilities some tracking issues with my eyes, a little like some dyslexia. And I had some hearing problems because I had a lot of ear infections as a child mm. and my eardrums got scarred. But my family, the rest of my family is highly intelligent, very artistically and musically talented. And as a kid who struggles to read and has trouble with their numbers because everything's flipping around the wrong direction, as well as not being able to hear very well in the, for the music part of things, I very much felt like I really didn't belong no. with this family. And with the pressure to perform all the time, I remember at one church, I was never allowed to hold a microphone when we would get up there and, and, and sing. 
And one of the sound guys just handed me a microphone at this one church, giving everybody a microphone. And my dad was like, oh, she doesn't need that. I was very excited. Oh, I got a microphone. And my dad, she doesn't need that. And the the sound guy saw my reaction and was like, it'll look a little odd. We're not going to be able to pick her up if she doesn't have a mic. And it'll look a little weird if she doesn't have a mic. And my dad was finally like, okay, fine, but make sure it's turned off. And so I was like, that message was very clear to me. Okay, he doesn't want them to hear me. I must sing bad or I must, I'm not measuring up. Hmm. So there was a lot of that that, that was, went on. And we were, of course, when we're traveling, we were homeschooled. We switched back and forth between homeschooling and being in the Christian school at our home church. And with my learning struggles, I had teachers that called me stubborn and stupid and things like that. And I couldn't keep up with the, at first we were doing paces, the ACE paces. And when you can't read very well, (laughs) a, those kinds of things don't work for you. So that was when we started going to the Christian school and I just struggled through school and the, the doctors had given me some exercises to do to try to build up my tracking and help with my dyslexia. But my sibling always made it a point when I was doing those things to point out how much of a extra burden I was on our mom for ha- for her having to spend the extra time to do that. Yeah. So that was like from five to eight. <laughs> I'm very different. I don't really belong. I'm always constantly being embarrassed in every church that I go to. And so I would say not great, probably. <laughs> <laughs> for the yeah. early memories right. of the IFB. Yeah. It, did you feel like you mentioned your brother a little bit, like with the, like kind of provoking when it came to the education, do you feel like that was just learned from the parents or do you feel like it's something that was like, just encouraged? It was just something the family did. I I don't really know. I know like we were, there was constant all through growing up. We had constant pressure about grades mm. constantly doing, you need to do better, you can do better, work harder, get better grades. And as somebody with dyslexia, spelling was my like horrible, I was horrible at spelling English. So school was always a, of course, and then we went, when we went to the mission field, we were homeschooled, obviously. And it was just, it was never good enough. I'm like, even if I got a good grade on a test, on a spelling test or whatever, and they'll be like, see, you can do it. You need to do it all the time. It wasn't like celebrate the victory. It was now the goalpost is here. Like you say a lot, goalpost is here. Now it's here. And there was always a feeling with me that because I was different, because I had the struggles I had, he was the favored child because mm-hmm. he didn't struggle in school. He had almost photographic memory. He could sing. He could play instruments. So I really felt like he was the favorite and I was what somebody that got stuck with <laughs> kind right. of was what I felt like. So tell me a little bit about the mission fields. Like, cause like deputation is a chaotic, crazy time. That's, I can't imagine as a parent driving around the country with my kid, like it takes, it's, it, I just can't imagine the toll that has on both the kids and the parents. Like it's a, it's just an exhausting time. How did things change once you got onto the mission field? Like what was the life and dynamic there? Did it get better? Was it worse? What was the environment um, there? So on deputation, there was, it was drilled into me. I learned very quickly that 
acceptance and love was basically on performance. Mm. If I, I felt the weight and the burden of if I didn't behave right at this church of the church not supporting us or not giving us a love offering. And if the church didn't support us, then we couldn't get to the mission field. We couldn't witness people and people were going to go to hell because we weren't there. And that was going to be my fault. Because you know how that's preached from the pulpit. If you don't go soul winning, people are going to go to hell and the blood's going to be on your hands. If you don't give, people are going to go to hell and the blood's going to be on your hands. When you're hearing that all the time, because you're always in mission preferences, <laughs> it really gets in there. So I had a lot of that weight. And then when we went to the mission field, it shifted from missionary kid to preacher's kid. Hmm. And hmm. the pressure that's on the preacher's kid that every preacher's kid has this pressure that they're under the fishbowl. You live in the fishbowl. Our church was unique in that we weren't missionaries to the foreign, the nationals of the Mm -hmm. place we went to. We were missionaries to the military. So we had a church that was on, on the economy as opposed to on the base. We had a church that was on the economy and, but it was built out of, people from the military base, families from the military base. And so in, in the military dynamic, you have to get to know people fast, make friends fast, make determinations fast, because every two years, your entire church turns over. Yeah. (laughs) So there was the pressure of you're the preacher's kid. Everybody's watching you to see how you behave and you're a reflection of your father and parents. And if you're not behaving right, then you're going to, you know, mess up their ministry and the pressure of constant changeover of people make friends. And then those friends are gone and then try to make new friends real fast before they leave. And it was at this time as well. And it was really quick. It was, so we got to the field in June or July and we had to go back to the States to renew our visas because we had a six-month visa. And by December, we had to go back to the States mm. just to renew our visas, and then we could come back. But in that six months that we were there is when the sexual abuse started. And it started as touching and things like that and progressed very quickly to full-on rape and I I know it got that far that fast because I have a clear memory of him actually raping me at my grandparents' house when we were back to, to renew our visas. Hmm. And then we went back to the country and it continued. And uh, there was, we lived in a couple different houses while we were there. And the second house that we lived in was actually right behind the church building. And so my dad's office obviously was down in the church building. My mom would go down several times every day for several hours to practice piano, which left us. And my sibling is four and a half years older than me. Okay. So it wasn't a big deal. They're safe. He's old enough to watch out for his kid sister. So I was eight, nine when this started, which would make him almost 13 to almost 14, 15 that okay. age when this right. began and when we lived in that second house there were hours every day where there were no parents in the house and I can't tell you how many times it happened I've lost I lost count but I remember I would hide in my closet I would hide on the other side of my bed and just hope and pray that he 
would not remember I was there, not remember I existed, so that he wouldn't do it again. But mm-hmm. and and this went on for three years. Was the was the total length of time of the active abuse. Yeah. And I'm sure people are like, where were your parents when this started? Like my dad's office was a couple doors down from us in the first house we lived in. And there were two times where my mom had to go back to the States for an extended period of time. One was for her sister's wedding and one was because she um, broke her ankle and had to have surgery on it. So there was two extended period of, periods of time where it was just my, our dad and us and he would go down and study and prepare for Sundays. And coming from a background where there's a lot of emphasis on my father's background, where there was a lot of emphasis on your worth is tied up in your work and what you do. So my dad was a a workaholic. He still is, (laughs) but he's, it's all about the work and the doing, and that's where you get your value from. And that's where you get your worth from. And that was definitely passed down (laughs) through the family, but so my mom wasn't around for some certain periods of time and that's mm-hmm. when it, it really got started. And then he just took advantage of any time we were alone to do this until he almost got caught at one point. And then the active rate stopped, but I had no idea why, but the threats of I'm going to come in your room after mom and dad go to bed, the looks that he would give me and the, the constantly, if you weren't so stupid, you wouldn't be having problems with this part of English or that part of whatever, that was an ongoing thing that continued even after the rapes stopped for a period of time. But uh, eight eight is obviously really very young. Was there, did you have any, obviously there was bullying and, but did you have any like sense of like things were headed that direction or that he was thinking in that way? before it started happening was there any were there any warning signs or would you you i I suppose you wouldn't have even been able to identify the warning signs at that age you know no and it's it's something that i i come to realize is when this took place it was back in the 80s this was sexual abuse wasn't even something that like the world discussed it didn't it was hush out there so within the church it like didn't exist Everybody acted like it didn't exist. So it was not something I had any clue about. And he would, I remember at the beginning, he would say things like, if you don't do this, I'll tell mom and dad you didn't behave. And I was so petrified of getting a spanking and getting in trouble that I was like, spankings hurt worse than what he's doing right now. So whatever. In, In the beginning, later on, obviously that wasn't true. But at that point. He was also significantly four and a half years yeah. older than me, yeah. and he was significantly bigger than me. Yeah. I really didn't have any options. It feels like an adult. My, my brother's five years older than me. So it feels, it's a big gap between you're in middle school, they're a high schooler. There's a lot of power dynamic right there. Yeah. Is that same thing what motivated? Because you already mentioned one thing, like people will go, oh, where were the parents? And also I think people like grappled to understand, okay, it went on for so long, like it, nobody found out or nobody, but it's a very, you've indicated this, like it's a very tough situation to be in because you're fearful of getting in trouble. First of all, like Mm -hmm. you're worried about him flipping the narrative. Is that same mindset kind of what fueled you? Like saying, I'm not going to bring this up. Like, I'm not going to be the person 
or did you even feel like if you brought it up, did you feel like there would be any kind of like pushback or you'd be the one that gets in trouble for what was happening or? So there was no concept in my mind (laughs) of ever telling, Mm. ever bringing it up because of fear of getting in trouble. And I, I really did. He's the favorite. And once I was older and like really began to realize what in the world this was that he was doing to me, the weight of you, we were raised, you have to behave, protect the family reputation, protect the ministry, mm. the preaching from the pulpit that if, if a man's house isn't in order, then he's not fit for ministry, was preached more at the kids than at the parents. So kids, if you don't, if you don't toe the line, you're going to ruin your parents' ministry. If, you're, if you get rebellious, you're going to ruin your parents' ministry. And the blood of people your parents could have reached is going to be on your hands. Mm-hmm. So I really carried that weight. And the protect the family first above everything, ministry first, and then the family. So protect the ministry, protect the family. Once I realized what it was he was doing and the possible ramifications of it, I was... 11, 12, by the time I really began to understand what he was doing. And at that point, I was like, if I say anything, my dad's going to lose his job. Where are we going to live? How are we going to eat? Because mm-hmm. well, all I'd ever known was my dad is a preacher. Like, I had no concept. My dad had the ability yeah. to do anything else. You're a kid. Yeah. So really, that, that programming of protect the family, protect the family, really influenced me later on there was a point at one point that I told my friend I told one of my friends something that happened and she said she told her mom and that her mom's comment was something about me being a poor confused kid or something like that and after that some things happened with other missionaries like telling my parents they didn't belong on the mission field and stuff so my brain automatically connected Mm-hmm. I said something and now my parents are suffering and I'm never going to open my mouth again. And I later on found out like they never said anything to my parents. My parents had no clue about that any of this happened until I told them when I was like 30 something. <laughs> so they like, they had no, no idea that it happened. So you so didn't end up saying anything about this till you were 30, which means that you were carrying this for a really long time. And I, so what was the next, so because you're sitting there with an immense amount of trauma in your corner that nobody knows about things otherwise are going business as usual for the rest of the family. Yeah. Like what was the rest of your, because it's never going to go back to normal. What was the rest of that high school trajectory like moving forward with you knowing this, your brother knowing this, but nobody else knowing what happened? Like he almost got caught. The rape stopped for a period of time we came home on for furlough missionary term yeah. here we came back to try to raise more support and give all right. our you know reports to our churches and it happened to be his senior year of high school mm-hmm. and that's why part of why we timed it then was so he could come back he could graduate they could get him settled into college before we went back to the field and it happened at some point in that year that we were home. My mom had gone somewhere. My dad was working and we were home alone. And I was walk- in the house that we were staying in. 
I was walking from the kitchen towards the living room through the dining room. And he said my name and he looked at me and I knew what he was going to do. And I tried to take off, but he grabbed me and in the wrestling and him trying to do what he was attempting to do, I fell and I hit my head on the stairs and actually was unconscious for a short period of time. When I came to, he wasn't around, so it must have scared him off. But in that time, so I'm going to Christian school where we're hearing in chapel about purity and mm-hmm. how you have to be pure for God to use you and all these things. And going to teen retreats where they're like, if you're not a virgin, God doesn't want anything to do with you. No. <laughs> you, got, you can't be used. Youth conferences with Jack Scott preaching. Yay. And and hearing in the split chapels and in these youth conferences that if, if you've held hands with a guy or if you've kissed a guy, you're like this um, mangled rose or this half-eaten candy bar that nobody wants, let alone if you've actually had sex with someone. If you've yeah. actually had sex, you're beyond hope. You're just walking garbage. So I'm go- I come into this youth group with this knowledge of what had been done to me in the past, going to school every day. He got his license and he was driving us to school every day. And I rode in that car every day to school wondering, is this today he's going to pull the side of the road and try something? Mm -hmm. Is he going to try something on the way home? And then he actually, he he attempted again to rape me. And I continued to go to school and listen to these preachers say, if a girl gets raped, it's her fault because she was, acting flirtatious or she wasn't dressed honestly or she was this or she was that and in my mind I'm like I was walking from the kitchen to the living room to go watch tv I was wearing my culottes to the bottom of my knee Mm. I had a loose t-shirt on I didn't say anything I didn't do anything but yet it's still my fault and I have to and if I say anything to anybody here it's going to be on me besides the fact I'm going to destroy my family's ministry and what are we going to do for a living and how are we going to, you know, pay the bills and eat and all that stuff. So in, in high school, I was actually suicidal. I had, I had several plans to kill myself. And anytime I reached out, there were two different times that I actually reached out to an adult and said, I want to die or I want to kill myself. And the response I got was, something along the lines of stop being so dramatic, stop being ungrateful. You have the perfect Christian family. Be thankful for what God's given you. Because my family is what is referred to in trauma circles as a tricky family, because on paper, they look amazing. Mm -hmm. Your physical needs are met. You have a place to sleep, clothes to wear, food to eat. You get get to go to a good school and go into a private school. So you're getting your education. They're providing for your needs. But, but on the inside, there's emotional neglect and emotional abuse and mental abuse and not just from the sibling, but you know, from my parents. <laughs> and so everybody from the outside has had this view of my family and still do, <laughs> except for those that I've blown, blown, told the news to. A lot of people still have the view of my family as this perfect Christian family, this great example of this godly, wonderful family. 
and it's actually a train wreck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a living, a living hell for me until he was in college. And we went back to the field for about a year. And then my mom became really sick and we had to come back to the state because the doctors over there couldn't treat her. And I did, at that point, I just buried myself in activities. Whatever was going on, whatever I could do to not be in the house, that was what I did because home was just miserable. Up until my sibling went to college, I didn't exist to my mother. I have like very few memories outside of schoolwork, pressure, and the frustration of me not getting whatever it was she was trying to teach. I have very few memories of any interaction with my mom. No memories of I love yous or hugs or any of that stuff. I have some memories of that from my dad when I was younger, when like he would tuck me in. But after, after the abuse started, I was terrified of my father doing to me what my sibling did. He never did, but that fear was there. And so I avoided any contact with him. So that my sibling's abuse pretty much severed me from the rest of the family. I didn't feel like I belonged anyway, but it cut me off the rest of the way. So for high school, I just buried myself in in busyness, whatever sports I could do, team soul running, working on the buses, anything and everything I could do to not be at home. Because my mother all of a sudden discovered I existed once my sibling left the house. All of a sudden she was, what are you doing? And who are you talking to? Are there boys that you like? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not telling you anything. <laughs> I became, I, I was a very good actor because when you have to live a lie, you become very good at that. So I was able to give her just enough information to keep her happy and feel like she knew what was going on when really she had no, no idea. And yeah, my high school experience was, I was suicidal a lot of the time, but from the outside, Probably most of my teachers would have said I was a really good kid and a good example. And I had my rebellious period where I talked back to somebody or didn't jump and volunteer right away for something. That's the extent of your rebellion. Or listened to a contemporary Christian artist on the radio rather than (laughs) the Southern gospel that was approved. But other than that, I was constantly trying to prove to myself and to them vicariously that I wasn't what they said they that I was from the pulpit. I was constantly being told I was a slut. I was a whore. I was walking garbage. No godly man was going to want anything to do with me. I had no value or worth. And so I poured myself into the only thing I knew gave me value and worth, and that was working and serving in the church. And that was the high school for me. Yeah. <laughs> from the outside, I'm sure it, it looked great, but the reality was totally different than what people saw. So with that kind of fuel to it, I know you mentioned offline, like your family had a lot of connections with like Hiles Anderson College and First Baptist of Hammond. Once you were out of high school, because again, it, it sounds like you really internalized a lot of the preaching, even though you knew, like you said, you were wearing culottes or you were doing all these things that you knew were like you were supposed to do, quote unquote, supposed to do. It still sounds like there was a lot of, internalization of the messages that you were hearing. Like it was, man, if this is true, I got to work twice as hard to get out of this kind of spot. Did that, so is that what kind of pushed you? I'm assuming you went to Hiles 
for college after, if I can make guess, or, or was it? Actually, no, I didn't. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I was, every senior had their, that was one of my rebellions, actually. Uh-huh. Every senior had their meeting, their senior meeting with the pastor. And every single one of us, he told the exact same thing. I believe it's God's will that you go to Hiles Anderson. Hmm. Our pastor was like all in with Hiles went to pastor school every year. We went, we actually went, didn't go to the youth conference at Hiles. We went to Shawnee's youth conference um, in Louisville every year. But he he said, I believe it's God's will for you to go to Hiles Anderson. And I'm like, no, it's not. He just looked at me like, how dare you? And I said, nope, I'm going to Pensacola. And that was a rebellious thing to do for my church to go anywhere other than Hiles was uh, unheard of. Crown was acceptable, but Pensacola and BJ were just not okay. Well, both would be considered the more, more lib, much more liberal compared to First Baptist, which is funny considering yeah, yeah. how <laughs> not liberal they are. It's funny right. that that decision would be shocking to them. Yeah, he was like, "Why not?" And I said, "Because they don't offer the only thing I want to study." And he's, "What is that?" I said, "I want to study nursing. Mm. I want to be a missionary nurse because then I'm being spiritual." <laughs> um, a missionary nurse. And so he couldn't, at that point, he couldn't argue because Hiles doesn't offer no. any real education to begin with, but real education. They have an amazing crockpot class for women, yes. but yeah, yes. that's about it. <laughs> Christian womanhood. I, I did go to our college trip to Hiles just because I didn't want to go to, I wanted to miss the three days of school that they were going to be in right. Chicago. And it made my youth pastor so mad at me. He didn't speak to me all the way home. I don't even remember what I did, but I, I really ticked him off. But I was there and I was like, this place is a joke. This is ridiculous. I, I, my rebellion, my most open rebellion was against Kyle Sanderson because Jack Scott in one of the first youth conferences I went to said from the pulpit that missionaries were nothing but two-bit beggars who couldn't do, couldn't get a better job or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And so basically he'd insulted my family and my father and I was done with him I was like I'm not listening to this man I don't want anything to do with him so I got in trouble for having a rebellious attitude Hmm. I actually got Hmm. called out from the pulpit I was with Steve Robertson was the next preacher that preached after that and he commented about the girls sitting in the back row with their arms crossed with a rebellious spirit refusing to listen to the preacher (laughs) and I'm like yeah you you call my dad a two-bit beggar who's lazy and doesn't want to do anything I'm gonna not listen to you (laughs) but yeah that was why I was not going to go to Hiles Anderson I found out much later in my life that my parents wouldn't have let me go but I did not know that at the time that they wouldn't have let me go to Hiles because they never they would never say anything against the preaching from from Pope they would not disagree with the man of God so I never knew that my parents disagreed with anything that was coming out of the pulpit. So as far as I knew, what was said from the pulpit was what my parents believed and what they thought. And so that just, that message just kept getting farther and farther in. I actually went to Pensacola, which was interesting because my sibling actually went to Pensacola, graduated from there and was working at the college the year I went. But I had so, I was in so much denial that what he had done affected me in any way. Everything, everything still appeared normal. 
everything was, we operated as if everything was normal. I would hear other people talk about their relationships with their siblings or their relationships with their parents. And I would just think to myself, what are you talking about? Kids that would be homesick when we went to camp or youth conference, I'm like, what is your problem? You're like, I'm glad to be out of the house. And and away from, from that, I get to operate on my own. So for me, I know a lot of people were like, Pensacola is so strict. For me, Pensacola was actually a step down and more relaxed than the environment I came from. Mm-hmm. I could operate as an independent entity. <laughs> I didn't have to go soul winning every week. I didn't have, I was related to one third of my home church mm-hmm. because my grandfather's brother and all his children attended our home church. So it was like a family thing. And so that scrutiny and that, that constant watching wasn't there when I went to Pensacola. So I was actually, I actually found a level of freedom there. The other people are like, Pensacola, freedom, what are you talking about? It really was, depending on where you come from. Right. And I, I only went for a year to Pensacola. Some things started to, while I was there, some things did start to fracture. Being around him again after four years of, because for all of high school, I was the only child. He was out of the house. So he was, he, he would come home for Christmas or the summer, but then he got married the summer that I graduated. So I graduated from high school. He got married and they actually were both on staff at Pensacola. But that during that year, I, I met my now husband and was convinced that he was God's will for me because I told him I wasn't a virgin and he was okay with it. He didn't toss me to the side. He was a preacher boy and he didn't throw me away when I told him I wasn't a virgin. So I was like, this has to be God's will for my life because he didn't, you know, he didn't view me as as garbage. I only went there for a year and then he graduated that year. My freshman year was his senior year. He graduated from college and we we got married in 98, the next, so I graduated in 96, went to Pensacola from 97 to 98. We got married in the summer, or 96, 97, sorry. We got married the summer of 98. We were around here going to our home church until 2001. And even in that period, after I got married, I started to fracture even more because the teachings of the IFB about marriage, about women, their role and what the husband has a right to in marriage doesn't go well for a survivor of sexual abuse. Only I wasn't putting the things together. I didn't know why I was reacting the way I was reacting. But our marriage actually almost ended after a year because I was not handling this marriage thing and his right to my body to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Was some of that um, his, his resistance to diverting from IFB teaching, or was it just something where it was just the communication because maybe he felt you were acting strange about something and you knew why, but he didn't know. Was it more him resisting? I didn't he, know why. Yeah. Like I wasn't putting the pieces together because I was in, I was still in very much denial that it affected me that it wasn't normal for this to happen. Like my brain had normalized the the abuse and we were both ISB. We were both raised ISB and that teaching of 
but he, and, and so I had issues with intimacy he didn't have because he was not abused in that way. He had abuse in his past, which comes into play later, but he, he was not abused in that way. So his view of intimacy and my view were different after intimacy began. Like before intimacy, I was like, yeah, it's fine. It's wonderful. That's what married people do. But then I would get physically ill every single time. And so then I obviously wanted nothing to do with it and he didn't get it. And of course that causes lots of strain and issues and the IFB is not big on communication. (laughs) They don't teach communication. So our our marriage almost ended after one year, but then I had that you're going to ruin his ministry. You're going to ruin his ministry and people are going to go to hell and it's going to be your fault because you ruined his ministry and shaming my parents, like getting a divorce is the biggest thing you could worst thing you can do after you're married. Again, the, not shaming your family, not embarrassing your family. And then we were here until 2001 when we went out to New York State to help a fellow Pensacola graduate start a church, start a church plant out in New York. And he wasn't, he wasn't IFB. He called himself a historic Baptist, (laughs) but there were deaths, like they, they didn't have an issue with pants. All the women in the church wore pants. It was not a big deal. And so that part was a little looser, but he was more strict on, on in other areas. And it was, while it wasn't preached from the pulpit, it was exemplified in their relationship, the subservient woman and do everything to make your man look good kind of thing. And trying to live, when you're a staff person, in a church, you don't have a pastor. You don't have somebody that you can go to and be like, I have this problem or I have this question or I have this issue because if you go to the pastor's wife or the pastor, you're endangering your husband's job <laughs> because they're his boss. I was back in ministry with that ministry pressure of everybody's watching you. Everybody's looking at what you're doing. You're measuring up. How much are you serving? How much are you giving? And I like mentally, I think I just shut back down again and just kept stuffing all the the issues that had started to come up when we weren't in active ministry, when we were just church members serving. But even then we were a preacher boy couple waiting for a church. So we still had that level of these people are going to, and that expectation of, so when are you going to get a church and when are you going to go to a church and when are you, so we moved out to New York state in 2001 a month after the twin towers people thought we were insane <laughs> we're like there's a whole other state it's just not just the city <laughs> so because we were in the albany areas which is where the church was and for the next 12 years we served and we worked in that church and helped fill that church it was the longest i'd ever lived in one place yet in my life And while I was there, I was as sincere as I could be and as honest as I could be, but staff people, so you don't have a pastor that you can go to and you don't have friends because you can't be seen as having favorites or hanging out with people too much because then you're going to cause strife and division because, oh, they like them better than me. So you're stuck in this place that gets very lonely where you're on staff. But even as a staff, you're not, 
close knit. You're not whatever because you always have that. He's my boss, and if I mess up or if I do say the wrong thing, we're out the door. And then from the church people, you always have an example to set, and you always have to be at this next level. But there were great people, loved the people, and after ten years, the head pastor was asked to come pastor a church, his home church actually back here in Michigan. And because the pastor had committed suicide and he had gone out and preached the funeral. And about two or three months after that, the church called and asked him to come be their pastor. So he took that church and my husband candidated to be the head pastor of our church. And we were voted in. But as with every pastoral change, you lose the group of people that was there for the man and not the church. That because the guy we were serving was this very charismatic, very outgoing, very type A personality. My husband's more laid back than that. <laughs> and so we became the head pastor. And so the next level of pressure and the next expectation settled in. And still, you know, loved the people, great people. They were very loving and supporting of us. It just, when you're the pastor, there's, and you have no, no place to go. And that pressure of having to be in charge and having to have the vision and having to lead, actually that stress and pressure began to break my husband and he ended up with some mental health issues due to abuse from his childhood and he told me about his mental health issues and once again I was in the position of I have the secret that I know if I tell somebody the ministry's gone we're out of the job we're you know so once again I'm back to being (laughs) this back to being 11 12 years old with this secret and this burden and I heard about that, or he told me that in September. In December, we came home, and again, I'm, everything in my family is still normal, right? We're still operating completely normally as if nothing bad has ever happened. And we came home for vacation for Christmas, and my sibling and his family came up. Um, they had actually moved back here, and my daughter, who was seven and a half, almost eight, was sitting on his lap at Christmas and my brain freaked out. At that point, the walls I built around the abuse exploded. It wasn't, they started to crumble, they exploded. And from that point on, I was having uh, nightmares, flashbacks. I wasn't sleeping. I was disassociating. I was a mess, a complete mess. By the middle of January, I was back to being suicidal. I I was a train wreck. I was losing. I was disassociating in the middle of the day. I was nannying for a deacon's wife and a deacon and his wife in our church. I was nannying during the day, taking care of their kids. And both of them had counseling experience. And so I went to them with my issue, with my health mental health issues saying, this is what's going on. What do you think? And so they started to, to try to help me and help try to help me through that. And one of the things that they did to try to help me through that was to remove me from all ministry. 
But what they didn't understand about me was that was my worth and value. My identity was all in, because that's how I was trained, was in what I did and, and in serving in the church. And so when they removed me from all my ministries, I went from never being in a service because I was always teaching or serving or in the nursery to only being in service. And it actually made my mental state worse. The things, my husband's mental health began to get worse. And I, I finally broke down and told the deacon and his wife about my husband's mental health struggles. And the deacons did the best that they could, not having any experience really with mental health except for this one deacon. And they were as patient as they could be, but eventually it came to the point where we had to leave. I had, I was being triggered by men in the church because they had the same physical build as my abuser did, even though they had nothing to do with it. They would send me, just them being, walking in the door would send me into a panic attack. It just got to the point where we had to leave the ministry. And because of our mental health issues, once again, our marriage was not in a good place. And so the reason that we gave for leaving was because our marriage wasn't in a good place, which was the truth. It was not in a good place. It was in a good, not in a good place because of the mental health issues on, of both of us. And so we were stepping down from ministry. But that reason that we gave ended up turning around and biting me later on. So we... We left the ministry. I had actually cut off contact with my family, all of my family, for a period of time because when I would call, my mom would talk about her son and his kids because they lived here with them, and I couldn't handle hearing his name, none of that. Like, my PTSD was full on. It was awful. And so I had cut off contact with them because... I couldn't handle it. And I was trying to, like, I can hurry up and I can heal and I can get better and I don't have to tell them and I don't have to, I don't have to break this and I can still protect the family and I can still protect their ministry and I can still protect this and heal too. (laughs) That didn't work. So in October of 2013, I finally told my parents about the abuse Hmm. and they were upset, obviously. One of the reactions was that was that happened then. There's nothing we can do about it. So how do we move forward from here? Hmm. And part of their reaction was, I'm such a terrible parent and I'm such a horrible person. And I'm so... It, one reaction was, draw a line in the sand, move on, let's get over it. And another reaction was, it's all about me and how awful hmm. and horrible I am. But I try to continue to protect them as much as possible and protect everybody else as much as possible while trying to deal with my stuff. In leaving ministry, I lost not only my worth and value within the serving, I lost my worth and value because I was no longer in ministry. And so therefore, God wanted nothing to do with me because I wasn't, I was no longer I was no longer serving him, so I was of no use to him. I was of no worth to him. I lost my personal worth and value because I wasn't serving in the church, and that's all I'd ever known. I lost my home because we were living on the church property. I lost my church family, which was 
the only thing I'd known for the last 12 years that our life evolved around the church. I lost all but a couple friends. There was only really one that actively tried to stay in contact with me. There were a couple others that were periodic check-ins, but pretty much I lost everything. And my marriage was holding on by a thread. So I really, in this, in, in one year's time, my life imploded and I lost everything, mm-hmm. absolutely everything. And the kids that I was nannying, I had nannied, there were three of them and two of them I had nannied since they were born. Like I went to the hospital and saw them and I, and in this process of us leaving and things going on in the church, they actually, they moved away. And so I lost, I lost my extra kids too. Mm. (laughs) So there was a lot of chaos and trauma and grief going on on top of the PTSD. It was just not a good time for me. But the, when I had told this deacon and his wife about my husband's mental health, they're like, okay, this is too much for us. We know this is too much for us. We're going to see if we can find somebody else for both of you to talk to. Mm-hmm. In that process, they found a pastor and his wife who said they had experience counseling people with PTSD and with my husband's mental health issue. And... I should have known from the first meeting that this wasn't going to go well, but I didn't. I was still in the yeah. mindset of the yeah. pastor knows everything. You got to. In the first meeting, he told me that my nightmares and my flashbacks were because I was bitter and unforgiving towards my abuser. And if I would just forgive, hmm. the nightmares and flashbacks would go away. So I tried my absolute hardest to be forgiving and to forgive that, that person. And the nightmares and flashbacks didn't go away. (laughs) And I couldn't figure out why. And of course, I couldn't tell them that because if I told them, then I'm still being bitter and I'm forgetting. We ended up moving in with my husband's parents because they lived around there and going to this pastor and his wife's church. My mental health state declined because of the stress of living with in-laws, even though they're not horrible people. (laughs) They were doing the best they could in the situation. And the stress from my husband's mental health issue and I'm homeschooling all my kids at this point. And this past, and I'm trying to counsel with this pastor's wife. And she actually at one point gave me that sheet that was posted in the discussion group. I think it was Gothard or Goddard that you're going to be spiritually stronger. God let this happen. So you'll be that special spiritual, whatever. I remember getting that paper from her and it being extremely not helpful to me at that time period. It came to a point where I just, I couldn't anymore. And the kids and I went on a six week vacation and we came and stayed with my parents for six weeks before I left on that vacation the pastor made me promise, bullied me into promising I was going to come back. Hmm. You have to promise me that you're going to come back and that you're not going to, you know, file for a divorce while you're out there and you're not going to move out there permanently, that you're going to give this another chance and you're going to, and I'm still operating. The pastor is the man of God. He's God pastor, same, same type level, because that's the ISB mentality. So I promised him I would come back. I came and visited my parents 
And during that time, there were boundaries. I had asked my parents when I told them about my abuse to put in place. My father didn't even try. My mother did try. He, it's her, there was definitely this constant pressure of forgive and get back to normal, forgive and get back to normal, get back to normal. (laughs) In my mind, I'm like, normal never existed. What are you talking about? But back to what they thought was normal. And so at the, so I was dealing with that. I'm still trying to, you know, talk to this pastor who's supposed to be counseling my husband on his mental health issues and trying to talk to my, his wife, who's supposed to be counseling me. And at one point she was constantly on me about my wedding vows and my wedding vows and my wedding vows. And at one point she asked me if I was coming back. And I said, of course I am. I promised your husband I was coming back. I'm, I'm not a liar. I'm going to keep my word. I found out also while I was here on that vacation that the rumor in the church that we had left was that we had to step down because I was, if not actively having an affair, I was close to having an affair with someone because of the way the announcement came down of our marriage not being in a good spot or being what it needed to be. The, there were women in the church that were spreading this rumor that I had an affair with someone or that deacon, actually, <laughs> who I never talked to alone. His wife was always there. So that, that was, I was getting bad information. I'm getting not good, helpful counseling from this pastor's wife. I'm getting pressure from my parents and, my mental health was not getting better. It just continued to get worse. And so I did, and I did go back and we eventually moved into our own place because my husband was able to find a, a, a job and we were able to get our own place. We continued to go to this pastor's church and I'm continuing to counsel with this pastor's wife. After I made that comment to her about, yeah, I, I promised your husband I was going to come back things shifted with her and I felt the shift as soon as I saw her in person and I actually asked her I'm like what's wrong I can tell something's wrong nothing's wrong nothing's wrong nothing's wrong within a couple months I get this you're acting inappropriately towards my husband and you need to stop and I'm just like what and the only contact I had with the man was emailing him bible questions or asking him about my husband's mental health counseling that was the only time I talked to him. And so I'm like, okay, a good Christian response. I've done something to offend you. And so I'm going to apologize for offending you. And I'm going to change behavior, even though she would not tell me what the behavior was. She was just telling me I was acting inappropriately. And so I apologized and I stopped emailing her husband altogether. So the only time I had any contact or communication with him was at church. It was the only time I spoke to him. Things were fine for a couple of months. And then I couldn't handle the marriage counseling that they had been doing, which had turned into everything was my fault because my husband was at this point following along and following in line and doing what the pastor said. And I'm over here pushing back and questioning because what they're trying to get me to do isn't working and it's not helping and so I'm pushing back 
and questioning things. He's falling in line. And so everything became my fault. Every problem in our marriage was my fault. Everything that happened, it was all on me. So eventually I was like, I'm done going to marriage counseling with them. My last straw was when she brought up something from our private counseling that I had told her in the marriage counseling without asking me permission, without giving me a heads up. She just did it. And I was like, blindsided out of nowhere. And I was like, what are you doing? And at that point, I was like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. But I was still trying to counsel with her because going to a professional therapist is not allowed (laughs) because they're nuts and of the devil and all that stuff. A couple months later, she comes at me again with the, you're acting inappropriately towards my husband. Now, I'm only communicating with him at church. And only hello, goodbye, talk when you shake my hand, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, what am I doing? And I, I'm like, tell me what I'm doing. And she's like, you're just being inappropriate and you need to stop. So I apologized again. And I, I stopped initiating any contact at church and would just, I would only speak to him when he spoke to me. If he came over and shook my husband's hand and shook my hand and spoke to me, I would speak to him. Otherwise, I didn't interact with him. And, and after that, I was like, I can't counsel with you anymore. <laughs> I can't do this. And so I found another Christian counselor in our area and started going to that person. And then within a couple months of that incident, all of a sudden, the pastor started avoiding me altogether. Like he would come talk to my husband, shake his hand, speak to the people in the row in front of me because people roll behind me and not say a word to me, act like I didn't exist. And I was like, okay, it's her thing. I'll just ignore it. Not a big deal. Until some of the other church members are like, what did you do to make pastor mad at you? Like, it was that obvious that other people were noticing. Like, I, I went over to, to look at something and he had been coming around the auditorium from this direction. And I was headed that direction, not even paying attention to where he was. And he stopped dead in his tracks and went around the other, totally the other way, just so he wouldn't have to walk by me. And I'm like, I'm imagining things that didn't just happen. And so I did a little test later on where he would have to turn around and walk back down the stairs in the church to avoid walking by me. And that was exactly what he did. He turned around and walked back down the stairs, went out the back door of the church, came around and went in the front door to not have to walk by me. I was like, okay, this is nuts. (laughs) So we scheduled a meeting and we're like, what did I do? Why are you avoiding me? And his wife's response was, you're looking at him too much. It's inappropriate. And I'm like, I'm looking at him too much? Yes, you're looking at him too much. At this point, he was leading the singing and preaching because our song leader was having issues with his voice. I'm like, I'm looking at him too much. Oh, okay. Okay. So from then on, when I went to church, I stared at the floor. I, de- I never looked up. And I'm like, this is insane. And, and in that meeting, she told me, I watch everything that you do. I watch you from the moment you walk in the building until the moment you leave. I see everybody you talk to and everything that you do. And I'm watching you and you need to know I'm watching you. And I'm like, okay. I don't know why, but Okay. So I'm going to church staring at the floor the whole time. And at a meal one time, I happened to get into a discussion with 
another guy in the church, another mar- a married man in the church. We happened to have a an interest in common, and we talked for 10 minutes in the lunch line surrounded by 30 people about this common interest that we had. The next week, he wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't talk to me. He avoided me altogether. And within a couple weeks, I, and I was just like, what? At this point, I was just like, whatever, whatever. <laughs> I just, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And his wife came to me and was like, I know it seems weird, but pastor and his wife told us that he shouldn't talk to you and he shouldn't be around you because you're a dangerous woman. So it's not, we don't think so, but they said so. And they're, and he was on staff. He ran a ministry out of the church. She's not worked for on staff. We have to do what he says. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, so I'm a dangerous woman. Okay. <laughs> and, and it got to the point where I was getting sick trying to go to church because I knew I was being watched all the time. I had to stare at the floor the whole time. And we had some special meetings coming up with an evangelist that I knew and had talked to before. And I asked this evangelist if he would mediate a meeting outside third party, help us figure this out, whatever the problem is. And he agreed to do that. And when he went to the pastor to try to schedule the meeting, the pastor got livid with him and told him it was none of my none of his business I was a liar and he shouldn't believe a word I said and that if he wanted to continue to have meetings at his church he would butt out Hmm. and then the pastor didn't speak to him for three days of the meetings and openly mocked him while he was preaching like sat he and his wife sat in the service talked to each other and mocked what the evangelist was preaching from the pulpit Hmm. in front of the entire church and I, I just was like shocked. I, I was like, oh my goodness. And the, and the evangelist came to me and said, I, I can't do this. I can't. You, you guys need to, you obviously need to meet and work it out, but I can't be a part of it. Yeah. And I was just completely floored <laughs> that they would be that blatantly, you know, obvious about punishing this evangelist. So it, it finally got to the point where I was so sick. I, I became so ill trying to go to church that I just, I stopped. I stopped going to church. I couldn't do it. Hmm. And I, I was going to this other counselor and I wasn't being able to deal with any of my past issues or my child abuse or my issues in my marriage because I was having to constantly talk to her about what I was dealing with at church. And the counselor was like, I'm not going to tell you to stop going. I can't do that. She's like, this man does not have a good reputation in our city. He does not have a good reputation in this area. He is not respected. And what they're doing is abuse and it's not okay. And it was at that point through my own research and through this counselor that I discovered what spiritual abuse was and how much of it I had actually suffered for my entire, through my entire life Hmm. with the types of pastors that I've been under and the, preaching that I sat under the mental and the emotional abuse, the manipulation that is rampant in the IFB and how damaging it really is to people. So I stopped going to church completely and my husband was really struggling because he's still, he's still all in IFB. This is the way we're supposed to believe. This is what we're supposed to do. The man of God and and all of these things. And after a couple of months of me not going to church at all. He said, okay, we need to work this out. We need to take care of this. So he scheduled a meeting with 
pastor and her and his wife without me there because if I was there, it just became a dump everything on me, attack mm-hmm. me the whole time. So we've all do it without you. And we just need them to acknowledge that this, these couple things, we had three things that we wanted them to acknowledge and we would be able to be willing to try to start over and continue to go here. He came out of that meeting and the pastor had completely flipped everything around and said that I needed to be willing to submit to his wife's scrutiny and deal with her watching me until I earned her trust back. But they still would not tell me other than looking at him too much what I had done that was inappropriate. And and my husband came home. He's like, if our other spiritual advisors say that you should submit to this, would you be willing? And at that point, I'm like, are you crazy? Because I had been out from under him for two months. I had been out from under her influence for a year and his influence for two months. And I was like, I'm done with these people. They're not. And he blatantly blackmailed the church, trying to get them to start a ministry. He introduced the ministry by telling them that the reason he left his last church was because the deacons in the last church didn't want to do this ministry that he wanted to start. And then he introduced this new ministry that he wanted to start. And I was sitting in the, in the church going, did he really just do that? Did he really just blatantly do that? And nobody else blinked an eye. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, man, wow, th- this is bad. That was right before I quit going. But my husband went to that meeting, came home, and was like, if our advisors say, he called the people he wanted for advice, and they all said, run, get out, no. <laughs> get away from those people. So we decided we would move. At the time, my mom was having some health issues. So we decided the best place for us to be was actually back here so that I could be closer to her. I could help her because there'd been a couple incidents where she called me. I'm 600 miles away and I have to call my friend who lives in town or her pastor to go help her out because the other side of the family wasn't doing anything and wouldn't go help her. (laughs) So we were like, okay, so I need to go back and and be there to help her. And I'll figure out how to deal with the fact that my abuser lives a mile away from my parents. And uh, so we began the process of getting ready to move. And the last service that we were going to be there for was the end of year program for the Passion Pirate Club, which my kids were in, some of them were in, some of them were helping. My husband had been helping with it. So I went to see my kids sing, to support my kids. At the end of the service, the pastor's wife comes up to me and she hugs me and she says, I'm sorry you couldn't be happy here. And in my mind, I'm like, you're the reason I'm leaving. I did not say that. I'm just like, okay. And I walked away because I was like, I can't even, I don't, I don't understand. So then we, And during that time of when these counselors were counseling me, I was self, I became, I came to the point of being a suicidal again. I was Mm self-harming. I was just a huge mess, huge mess. And when I stopped going to church, I found a preacher online who was preaching the Bible in a way I'd never heard before. Like, here's what the, here's the scripture in context. Here's the historical context that it goes with. Here's the cultural context behind it. And this is what 
it means, and here's the perspective with all the historical context and the cultural context and all the things that I'd never heard scripture preached that way. And I was just amazed that, you know, I was like, wow, which that's what began my journey out of the IFB. When we moved to Michigan, we went to church with my parents because we were staying with them. And, and once again, I'm very thankful that my parents took me in, that my parents helped us move. I am very thankful that, that they were there in those ways and provided us a place to stay and a safe place to land and all that stuff. But while we were living there, the pressure continues. The pressure of forgive and get back to normal. You're the black sheep. You're the one that fractured the family. You're the one that caused the problem because I was talking about it. We had asked that certain boundaries be in place, like that he not just show up to my parents' house. Yeah. Like we just yeah. say, you know, call, let us know you're coming, call or text so that I have time to go be in my room and lock the door so I have a sense of safety. They ignored that request. There were many times where he would just show up and I still could, I can't handle hearing his name. It triggers flashbacks for me. My, my father has never tried to honor that boundary. He just talks about them. Yeah. I became, during that period of time, between when I told my parents and when we moved, I became my mother's counselor because my da- father didn't see the need for her to go to a counselor. It didn't happen to you. Why do you need to talk about it? So mm. the only person she had to talk about it to was me. So I'm trying to counsel her and reassure her and and, and take care of her while I'm still falling apart. So many unhealthy things going on there but i am thankful that they took us in and that they gave us a place to stay and that they were there for us and i can look backwards from my parents to my grandparents i can see the dysfunction through the generations coming down i don't blame my parents like i don't blame my parents for not seeing because people in the world didn't see the abuse nobody knew about it nobody understood these things even though there were ways i acted out as a kid that today would have been recognized as these are signs that this child being abused at that time period. Nobody had any clue what no. that was or why no. that a kid would be doing that, things like that. So I don't blame them. I'm currently not in any contact with my family, but it has more to do with how they've acted since I've told them than, than what I went through as a kid. Hmm. So we lived with my parents for a year. So my husband and I were able to get jobs. We were able to get some money together and get our own house. But, and at the time we moved out and got our own house, I still was like, I need to be close enough in case she needs me, in case she needs something. Still trying to play the good, the good daughter. And so I live a block and a half from my parents. I live a mile and a half from my abuser. I live across the street from the church I grew up in. It's an interesting situation. But after we moved, I was living as, as long as I was there, there was that constant pressure of you, ha- you need to forgive and move on and get over it and get yeah. back to normal, get back to normal, protect the, protect the family facade, protect the everything. When I moved out of my parents' house, we also at that time changed where we were going to church because there was one time we were, one Sunday we were just really tired and just didn't feel like going to Sunday night church. And so we told the kids, we're not going, we're not going to church. And one of our kids came to us and was like, but if we don't go to church, God's going to be mad at us. And I was far enough out of the ISB at that point to be like, full stop. 
this is not okay. <laughs> like, I don't no. want my children growing up the way I did with that constant fear. Now, we, we have a lot of damage to undo because our, we, we have four kids and our oldest grew up, a lot of his growing up was in that yeah. you know, realm, that culture. And he is in counseling and he is working on his, working on healing from that stuff. I'm in counseling, my husband's in counseling and trying to work on these things and heal from the damage of that, that, that cult, that cult. And so we changed churches. And at that same time period, I was like, I can't look my daughter in the face. I can't look my nieces in the face and tell them it's only not okay to be abused by somebody outside of your family. An abuser who's not related to you should go to jail and should be charged with a crime. But if they're related to you, then you shouldn't do that. And I, I was at this place where the abuser being a family member doesn't make it not as bad. It makes it worse. And so I made the decision to go to the police and to file charges against my abuser, which I was only able to do because of the actual rape that occurred at my grandparents' house and the attempted rape that occurred his senior year here when we were back on furlough because the rest of my abuse happened overseas and would have been out of their jurisdiction. Wow. So I went to the police and I filed charges and I didn't tell anybody that I was going to the police to file charges. I didn't tell anybody in my family. About a month and a half later, the police officer that I was dealing with called me and told me that the prosecutor had declined to file charges and that they wouldn't be pursuing anything. It was very difficult to hear, but I was like, I tried. I, I did what I could. And I can tell my kids, I stood up and I went to the police. I went to the authorities. I told. And that's what needs to happen. If, if somebody's been abused, abusing you, you need to tell. But then a couple months later, I knew when my family found out that I filed charges because I got some texts. Hmm. I thought you wanted to protect him. I thought you didn't want revenge. I thought, and so they were very upset with me that I had filed charges against him. During the year that we lived with them, they went and listened to him preach at his church. Mm. They had known, my parents had known since 2013 what he did to me. It wasn't until after I told my parents that, or until after he found out that I told my parents that he wrote me an apology letter Mm. that I actually, in in thinking about doing this interview, I went and I took it to a lawyer and I'm like, what are my options? If I out him in a public forum, what can he come after me? And he's, this is the worst apology letter I think I've seen in my practice. He's, this is definitely an, I'm sorry, I got caught letter. He said, but it's enough proof that he can't come after you. He Mm -hmm. admitted guilt here. And so he can't come after you for slander or whatever. He's like, just so you know, I've been in this business for 30 years and that's not an apology. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I didn't really feel it was either, but you know, the apologies, I'm sorry, you kind of apologies. And Oh, I had also talked to a lawyer to see what my options were about doing a civil 
kind of suit against him. And the lawyers, to be honest, if he had money, we'd be all over this. And, and we would have no problem taking this case. He's, but it's not worth it. He doesn't have money. He doesn't have anything to go after. So it, it's just not worth it. And I'm like, hey, see, thanks. <laughs> but at least he's right. honest. And I wasn't going at, if I had sued him civilly, it would not have been out of revenge. It would not have been out of spitefulness. It would have been out of, I told my parents, I told the police, I went to the authorities and they're not doing anything. He, he has no record. He has no, if he were to get a background check down on him, he would pass with flying colors. Hmm. I know for certain for years he was working with children at that church. I have no idea if he has any other victims. I don't, you know, I'm not going to say he does. I don't think he does. I don't know. But at the same time, I'm like, it's, it's not okay that this is still a secret. It's, it's not okay that people whose children are exposed to this person every day don't know what he did. Yeah. And, and it's not okay that I have to continue to live in a way that is protecting the rep, the reputation and the ministry of people who don't care enough to even now try to protect me or support me in my attempts to protect myself. I still get, my husband made a post on Facebook where he didn't name him. He didn't come close to naming him, but it scared them enough that they came asked, they messaged back and was like, talking about this now doesn't do any good. It's only going to hurt. It's only going to hurt your children and our children. It's only going to hurt their, your parents' ministry and their reputation. And I'm like, what's the worth of protecting a reputation that's a lie? Yeah. And ministry is not the end-all, be-all <laughs> anymore for me. It's not. And I'm not going to be bullied into silence to make you comfortable. Like, this is the truth. This is the reality of what I went through, of what I lived through. This is the reality of what our family actually was. Very dysfunctional and unhealthy. And this facade of perfection that the IFB tries to paint over everything, it's not worth protecting. But there are mm -hmm. girls that I know that go to that church. And those girls are worth protecting. Hmm. Those girls are worth speaking up for. My daughters are worth speaking up for. My daughter's friends are worth speaking up for. Because if me speaking out, I can't get justice. I've exhausted every avenue. There will be no consequences for the person who abused me. But if me speaking out gives another girl or another woman, or another teenager, the courage to stand up and say, this is what's happening to me, and this is who's doing it, and they have the chance for justice, then that's what I want to happen. And if me speaking about the IFB, and I, <laughs> I get a lot of pushback from family, because like I said, a lot of my family goes to that church, extended family, and I get a lot of pushback 
from them and trying to silence me talking about things that I know that happened there. And if what I talk about opens somebody at somebody's eyes and they're able to get out of the cult, if they realize that staying just because you have friends there isn't a good reason to stay and that children catch far more than they're taught. And so when they sit in those pews, you may think that what's being preached from the pulpit is over their head. They don't understand. They're not really listening. I guarantee you they're hearing a whole lot more than you think they are. And it's sinking down into their little brains and their hearts. And they're internalizing those messages. And it's affecting them far more than people realize. And the IFB is not a safe place for women or girls or even boys because it teaches them they're incapable of controlling themselves and that women exist for their, I remember I was taught all the time, the entire time I was in the IFB that the women exist to fulfill the physical needs of the men and that's their only reason for existing and that all the woes of the world are women's fault because it was the, you know, Eve's fault that, that Adam fell. <laughs> so women carry the weight of all of creation groaning. <laughs> it's their fault. I, 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 I ask this question a lot for people who are now on the outside looking in. You, you mentioned again, offline that the, the church you grew up in has produced several predators that you're aware of. I think you said five and obviously two through going through deputation through traveling, you've gotten to see a lot of the independent Baptist world beyond that church. And so I'm, I'm curious when you look at the movement itself, do you think it's a movement wide issue? Do you think it's something where there is potential for it to be reformed or restored in any way? Or do you think it's something that is just broken in the foundational teaching of the movement? I would say any church with any connection whatsoever to Hiles Anderson is beyond hope because they are, their teachings are so twisted and so not scriptural. If churches, and they're rare, I know they exist because our church in New York was not a typical IFB church, but even there, the misogynistic, women subservient women aren't equal women can't have an opinion about certain things was very prevalent comment when when we're cleaning up after a fellowship comments the good thing i didn't marry you for your brain made from a husband to a wife in front of a room full of people and nobody reacting negatively to that statement and being like dude what are you doing like you just insulted your wife in front of a room full of people and that, that kind of mindset is just so prevalent everywhere that I have been in Baptist churches. Women and, and girls, teenage boys talk to teenage girls in the exact same way. Yeah. They just are, you're stupid and you're, you're just a girl. You can't have an opinion because you're a girl. My, my daughter, my oldest daughter is fierce. I'll put it that way. She is not going to let any male tell her that she can't have an opinion. And her brother will get into it a lot because he was, again, they were raised 
mostly in that mindset. And I have to constantly be correcting them. No, women can do whatever they want. They can be scientists and they can be doctors and they can be artists. They can be whatever God gave them the talent to be. They aren't just for cooking, washing dishes and having babies. And so we're working very hard in our family to, to make sure that equality, everybody is a human being and everybody has value because they are a human being. Men don't have more value. They don't have less value. Everybody has the same value because we're human and a, a human being has value. And trying to undo <laughs> the damage done and trying to by example, working through the hard stuff, working through abuse from my past, my husband working through the abuse from his past, working through the spiritual abuse. I struggle still today to be able to walk in the doors of a church is extremely difficult for me. And I love the fact that the church I go to now, I've actually been able to share some of my story with the pastoral staff. And our worship pastor actually just this past Sunday said, it's a big encouragement to me when I look out and I see you sitting in that chair because I know the amount of effort it takes for you to walk in these doors Mm -hmm. and sit there. I know the hurt and how difficult it is sometimes to hear what's preached from the pulpit because it's the same words from, because scripture is scripture, right? (laughs) Even if it's from a different version. Sometimes the gist is still the same, and my brain translates it back to the King James. And he he said, I understand that struggle for you, and it's a great encouragement to me that you're still trying. Mm -hmm. So it's very nice to be in a church where, (laughs) where it's much more healthy, where our kids are taught a healthy view of Scripture and a healthy view of God, and that the pastoral staff is understanding of struggles of the people but we are not in a baptist church (laughs) and we have there's other baptist churches in our area that aren't ifb and i hear stories from them from people that have gone there or people that go there and i'm like it's not any different it's a different Mm -hmm. name different label but some of the cult practices are still the same and i think that goes with baptist I, th- I really think like there might be some that are truly independent that are just different because they just don't want to be like anybody else. But a lot of what I see, especially here in, Mich- in this part of Michigan, because Hiles has such a strong influence in this part of Michigan, that might be the reason. But mm-hmm. around here, mm-hmm. if it's Baptist, it's dangerous. I really do. It's like you said, it's difficult knowing like where this all stems from. And and obviously there's just tiles alone, the amount of impact and how much a lot of this teaching is spread and the same type of abuse is copy pasted across tons mm-hmm. of churches. I really appreciate you sharing your story and giving an opportunity for people who might be in the exact same position, whether they're personally being abused, whether they have family and they don't know how to reconcile that. Like, I'm really appreciate you sharing your story and giving, giving a voice to those people. And I, I say this a lot, but it's true is that every time I interview somebody, I'll get three, four, five, six messages from people who say, that's my story. That's exactly 
describes what I went through and experienced. I know that'll be the case with this interview. So I, I really do. I know much like you said, it takes effort to go sit in a church service. I can't imagine the effort and the the trepidation of sitting down and saying a microphone, like what you experienced and, and what happened. And I really can't, like, I can't pretend to know how that feels and, and how difficult that is, but I really appreciate you doing that. And I know it's going to be helpful to a lot of people. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to share my story in this way and hopefully be able to encourage those who are struggling and maybe help those who are, are stuck or silenced to be able to find their voice and, and start moving in the direction of being able to speak and find healing for themselves. Amazing. Thank you so much, Angie. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.